Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Broker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And Andrea has just finished putting together an epic course on newsletter marketing for authors. So we're actually going to spend uh, this podcast and the next podcast asking her questions about beyond the basic stuff that uh, we should all be doing for our newsletters. We're actually recording them on the same night. So if you happen to notice that we're wearing the same clothes both weeks, that would be why for those of you uh, who actually watch on YouTube. Um, but I, I'll be busy next week. So we're just going to knock it all out tonight and you will be getting part one and then part two. Very exciting. Um, but we're essentially going to cover kind of how to use your newsletter to sell more books. We've talked a bit about setting one up before and about providers and calls to action at the back of the book to get readers to describe. So we're just going to try to really focus on basically selling more books, not not so much the mechanics, although I think we have a few questions on, on some of that stuff, but like, what are we all doing wrong that we could, uh, <laughs> or even if we're doing it right, what could we be doing better? Before we jump into that topic, do you guys have any news or points of interest that you would like to share? Sure. Um, personal news, Free Wrench 6 is out. Uh, that is called Contaminant 6, and uh, it was a cursed launch. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but everything from Amazon not putting out the cover to personal events in my life distracting me from from uh, uh, you know, paying attention to the launch week, it's been a heck of a thing. But, you know, it's doing okay. Uh, I just don't think I'm going to have very many reviews on this one because when... When, when push came to show, me trying desperately to get reviews just completely fell off the, the table. But uh, it's it's been the people who have read it so far are raving over. I've had a lot of conversations with like the super fans, so hopefully it'll do well in the long run. And at the very least, this is you know the second of the three book six releases, so I am on track to do my regular my my uh, my plan for the year, which was to release book six of my three main series, ostensibly wrapping up each, each of those series, which means the only one left is my sci-fi series. And that's the next point I have here is uh, Big Sigma 6 has gone off to the editor. Uh, I will probably, I don't know when I'm going to release it. Um, we had spoken earlier about the end of this year, like November is probably a no-no zone for, uh, for releases and December is seldom a good idea. So I want to release it this year, but I'm either, it's a book six, so I'm only competing with myself. I'm not going to get a lot of new readers. So as long as I can get to my core audience, I don't think my release date matters that much. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'll pick a release date for that at some point. And also, I don't know how long this has been a around, but some of my fans were talking to me about it. So I thought I'd bring it up. Amazon has a book club um, front end now where you can sort of create book clubs to share. It's uh, amazon.com slash book clubs, I believe. And it looks like it's in early access right now. Uh, early enough access that I, the, one of my fans who is Canadian can't make a book club yet. But seems like it's another uh, opportunity for readers to get together and, and word of mouth spread books. And it seems like you're allowed to make your own book club. So I'm sure self-promotion through that means is not completely off the, off the, uh, the table. So look into it if you're the book club kind of person. It's the year of six, Joe. It has to be this year. Yeah, it comes that's out. true. I'll put it out on December 31st. I've never done that before. <laughs> At 11.59. <laughs> the last <laughs> possible moment. Yeah, which time zone, though? Because you could go for Pacific, and then it would be even later. That's <laughs> um, Okay, so I've got a new course out. Um, Lindsay mentioned that already. Um, yeah. 
um, advanced newsletter marketing. Um, it'll be available as two ebooks soon. I've just kind of been uh, focusing mainly on that. I've got a deadline for a story bundle and I'm not going to be able to get the whole course into one ebook and on time. And so I was like, I just, I'm just going to, I mean, it's a whole ton of information. And so separating it into two books is not going to be a problem. Um, the first one will be just about newsletter or subject lines and previews. Um, I'm still on a break from writing while Nolan studies to take his exam. He's applied to take it. And there's this, um, application period where you apply to take it and it takes them five days or so to review your application. And sometimes they get audited and sometimes they don't. And if you get audited, it's an additional like two weeks. And so he doesn't have a date set for taking it. Um, but once he gets his, it, the application is accepted, then he'll be able to set a date for that. And that's pretty much all that's been going on in my life. Um, that's in, you know, worth noting. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't mention it in the intro, but I am uh, podcasting to you from Bend, Oregon, one of the few cities not directly in the path of a fire right now, uh, recording this on September 10th. And I wish I was joking, (laughs) but basically most of Western Oregon is on fire. Uh, Joining California and uh, Washington, I retweeted a post of like, I don't think people know how much of the West Coast, not even the coast, just the West is on fire right now. So uh, that's crazy times. Hope that, uh, if I'm sure if you have had to evacuate, you're not listening to our podcast right now, but, um, if you are stuck somewhere and you are listening, very sorry. Hopefully, uh, I don't even know what to say. Hopefully things will work out. If you lose your house, it doesn't really work out. So kind of a sucky time. <laughs> and, uh, it's weird because I have lived in the area off and on since the early eighties when we moved here when I was a little kid and fires used to be something that like maybe happened over in Montana somewhere. And then John McLean would write a book about it. You know, if anybody died and there'd probably be a folk song about it. And it's just, now it's just like, Oh, every summer, how bad is it going to be this year? Um, but usually not the Western half of the state. That's the uh, dry. I mean, that's the really wet side with all the rain, all the jokes you've heard about Portland and Seattle. So if you can imagine crazy times. All right. As far as book news goes, I thought I would just mention that uh, Amazon has been kind of putzing around a bit with the free books. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody pointed out that uh, the free lists were kind of disappearing, coming and going, and that uh, books that were like perma-frees had been free for years. And, you know, people finding them in those free lists were suddenly, they were still free to buy, but they were showing up with like a crazy high ranking in the paid store. And uh, a lot of them have now reverted back. So hopefully this is just a buggy, glitchy thing. But I just peeked before we started recording in my Dragon Blood box set, which is one of my, you know, standard, I've talked about how that one is, uh, that series has done great for me. And, you know, a lot of people still find it even when I'm not promoting it. Well, nobody's finding it now because it's not showing up in the free list and it's like 400 in the paid store, which doesn't make any sense really, (laughs) uh, for free books. So that's crummy. Hopefully just a glitch. I, I always am thinking about. Uh, how I will change my tactics if I have to, you know, I'll put things back to 99 cents, but you don't, you always want to wait with Amazon, see, you know, give it a month to see if uh, something's just a glitch or if it's a new feature that they've rolled out. Uh, cause you know, somebody, Andrea, do you remember, cause I think you commented in the Facebook group, somebody was just saying they're doing pop-ups on Amazon now. Have you seen that? Cause I haven't seen that. No, it's really annoying. So you go to Amazon and you click on the book cover and it likes, 
like you click on your author name or on the book cover, it's like visit that I'm on there right now, visit Amazon's Andrea Pearson page. And you have to click on that before it'll take you previously. If you clicked on their name, it would take you to their page, but now it asks, it asks you to click to be taken. I'm like, I just clicked. <laughs> it's really stupid. Okay. I may know what you're talking about. I may not have noticed that that was a difference or, or I may not have seen it yet. Uh, Amazon often kind of AB tests or something rolls out some things temporarily and some people see it and some people don't. Uh, just a couple other thoughts before we get into our topic. I, a couple people have brought up in the Facebook group kind of asking, what do you do if you are either kind of starting to publish other people moving towards a publishing company or just taking on a couple people and you just suddenly have a lot more titles or if you're like really pro prolific and have a bunch of pen names and a lot of titles and, and things get super stressful, you know, at what point do you kind of look at hiring help and what kind of help do you need? And I think the common thing in the author community is like, well, pick up a VA. And usually that's going to be somebody that, I mean, you can always find somebody and train them yourself. Great if you've got uh, somebody in the house, <laughs> in the family that you can hire that cares and wants to help out. Um, but a lot of VAs will just work like maybe 10 hours a week for one person, 10 for another person. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's going to kind of depend on where you are financially. Are you, you know, one would hope with that many titles that you're making some stuff work and you're, you know, you're, let's say you're mid six figures or higher. Because uh, I've actually thought about well, what would I do myself if I wanted to have help? And I think instead of hiring a VA at that point, you might want to consider actually, and it's a lot more work with bookkeeping and stuff, but hiring a salaried person who is actually has experience, like put out the job offer and get a bunch of resumes uh, rather than trying to take somebody that's not to say that VAs can't be well qualified, but somebody you're going to pay like 15 or $20 an hour or two is probably not going to be as committed to you as somebody that you, if you hired a full-time person on salary and figure out with your bookkeeper accountant, how to actually make it all legal. You may have to give them benefits. I, I think that um, Dean and Chris over at their publishing company, they've got a full-time person like that. And that would be the way I would go at a certain point if I wanted to, especially if I wanted to expand and wanted somebody that was really uh, motivated and you could even do an incentive package or something with performance to like really, because that's probably, the, that's the hard time, hard thing when you've just got somebody working hourly is that they're not as invested, especially if you're talking about somebody to like start maybe running Amazon ads or something for you, that you want them to be motivated to actually care and put in a little more than if they're just like, you're one of 10 clients that they have and they bill you by the hour. So just something to consider if you do get to that point. Uh, optional. I purposely keep things as simple as I can because I don't really want to hire somebody. But if I was going to, uh, I've put some thought into that and I would want to do somebody something like that. Um, last thoughts. Another thing that comes up pretty often in the group is, you know, who can I hire to run my ads for me? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, and there have been some companies that have kind of come and gone, usually after they've disappeared <laughs> or gone out of favor. Uh, people will come out of the woodwork and be like, oh, yeah, I used them and I lost money or it didn't go well. So it's it's super tough uh, in our position as uh, mostly publishing ebooks for, you know, four or five dollars and ads cost X amount per click. It's really hard to make a profit even without adding on somebody's cut. A lot of these people want like a thousand dollars a month. And then everything that's going to go into the ads. So 
Um, my thoughts on that though is I would just kind of actually hold on for a couple years. I, I said in this in one of the replies in the Facebook group, I think we're getting really close on the auto ads. I've actually got stuff that's been running since May that I, I kind of check it once a month and it's like, yep, spending about what I wanted to spend, you know, doing what I wanted to do on Amazon and Facebook's got the auto ads too. I haven't played around as much with those. Uh, Andrea, you're more Facebook or Joe too. I don't know if you've played with them. Have you tried the auto ads on Facebook at all? Not a whole lot. Um, I usually like any automatic placement or things like that. I usually turn off just because I don't want to have to optimize for all the different locations. So I just keep it on Amazon or on, sorry, on Facebook. And I haven't really tested any of the, the auto options just because what I do is working. So I, I should though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering, cause I've heard from a few people that they're getting better. You know, any of these things, when they start, they're going to kind of suck, you know, <laughs> it's sort of a, they have to learn. There's a, you know, it's like a self-learning software that gets better with time. One thing you want to watch with the Amazon auto ads and I think EM mentioned this in the group that um, if you're not careful, it will target you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, look, all the sales that it's getting are because somebody searched for my name. And what you can do is you can just go in and put that as a negative thing. Like I put in my auto ads. I don't want like free eBooks. Anybody searching for that. I don't want my ads to show to them. And it just will not do that. Um, there is something to be said. I believe uh, Mark Dawson talks about it in his course or has talked about it at some point, it, you might want to target yourself so somebody else can't target you and cherry pick your potential buyers. Uh, it's possible somebody looking for you as a fan and you're the only person they want, but it's also possible somebody saw you on like a list on Goodreads and typed you in and they're not married to getting your books yet. So you can decide. Maybe you want one auto ad that does that. And then if you try another one or you try the category ads or something, which are almost as simple, you're just picking like space opera for that. You know, maybe on that one, you let it. Don't take that off as a negative keyword. So um, my point with bringing that up is just that I think give it another year or two. And I really don't think you're going to have to hire anybody. I've this year, I've really seen it. I mean, I, I set up a bunch of stuff when I launched my new series, uh, you know, and I tinkered with it a little bit then, but it's really been kind of set it and forget it this summer. I kind of go check, make sure nothing's crazy. Uh, and the things that were, but the things that were working like four months ago were still working. Um, I did at one point go in and lower the bids on everything. Like when I launched, I was like, I'm willing to bid more. I want to be in the first spot, you know, I sell as many books as possible. And later on, I raised the price uh, of the first book and dropped the, my max bid so that um, I wouldn't be spending as much for those clicks. And I'm still getting like an acceptable amount of impressions and clicks and sales. So yeah. Hopefully, uh, that will be something good coming in our AI run overlords of the computer's future. <laughs> that, uh, honestly, I think pretty soon they're going to be better than us at picking where stuff goes. It may still take a couple years, but um, I think we're getting there. All right. Do you guys have any thoughts on that before we jump into the newsletter topic? No thoughts. No, I don't want to think too much about AI right now. All right. I'm ready to welcome our AI overlords myself, but... Uh, Okay, so let us jump in. Before we start grilling Andrea with questions, I thought we should each just kind of remind or I don't know how much we've shared in the past. I have a horrible memory, but let's say kind of what we do, uh, like what provider we use, pros and cons to them, and basically how we currently use our newsletters. And I will start off. Uh, my provider 
is a Weber, which I don't think any other authors at all use. <laughs> I never hear them mentioned. They were just, they were kind of the, one of the early mailing list providers. And I signed up with them back in like probably 2005 or 2006 when I did wrote, you know, content for blogs. And um, I never actually seriously got a big mailing list going, but I was on there. And um, I think their rates are pretty expensive. And that's probably why most authors don't use them. I, I looked and it was something like for a list of up to 10 to 20,000, it was like 150 a month. And for up to, there was a free up to 500 one, but it was like $20 a month for zero to 500. That's if you sign up today. The reason I've never even considered leaving them is because I just grandfathered, grandfathered in on an old plan and I pay not even $150 a quarter for my list of like 30,000. I think, I, yeah, I'm about 30,000 between two lists. So, uh, and they've been super reliable. I've just kind of, every time somebody talks about what this mailing list provider did or like <laughs> changes that make it not as favorable, I'm just like, well, uh, I'm glad that these guys are just really, really reliable for me. I don't think I've ever even emailed service or had to. And I have a fantasy list and a sci-fi list, each with their own set of bonuses, each with a different uh, site page on my website. And I very rarely cross promote to the other lists. Uh, part of it was not wanting to like screw up the all so bots for launches but part of it was just that i have people that are sci-fi fans that read those and i have people that are fantasy fans that read those and aren't as interested in the others and then if they are interested in both they just sign up for both lists so that seems to be a way to one thing i don't want to do is when i'm doing like this is basically the sci-fi series year let's say or the urban fantasy series year i don't want to be sending out a whole lot of emails about urban fantasy to the people that are just like i just want spaceships i really don't care about this so that is why I chose to do two different lists for my two different genres. Um, I mostly just email for new releases since I publish often. I will um, also do sales sometimes too, especially if I've been publishing sci-fi and kind of neglecting my fantasy people uh, because I haven't published anything new. I will like maybe run a sale or send them an email that's like, hey, these are all the free things I have right now and just try to give them a little something now and then. And the reason I do only new releases, which Andrea is going to tell you why this is a horrible strategy and you should not do this, is <laughs> just at this point, my lists are large enough that I get a lot of replies that I then have to reply back to when I send emails. So I'm basically making myself a lot of work every time I email. Not a lot, but you know, work every time I email. Um, so it's just, that's the reason. And I think you'll probably find... Like, I'm not a super seller. I'm not like <laughs> some of the people out there, but I'm also not somebody with like a real small list, but not that many people yet. There's a lot you can do when you're still like really excited when somebody replies or somebody emails you. After 10 years, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm still happy to hear from people. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this is extra work <laughs> when I want to be writing. Um, so that's my reason. But if I were starting from scratch today, I would do the autoresponder series, uh, you know, set up so when somebody signs up, they get a few emails, uh, maybe a week apart with like links to like, here's this book one, you know, or here's the new book series that I'm launching, or here's, did you check out this older series of mine? That's one of my favorites. Um, because I absolutely make sales every time I email. And I think that you guys will find that too. And that's why it's a good idea to send emails. Even if you're not selling anything in that email, I'll still 
usually you see a little bump, like people remember you exist and they go see, oh, I wonder if I've caught up with everything. And of course, if you put links to the books, you make sales. So, but right now I'm just, I do it around new releases because I'm kind of in that mode uh, at that time that that's what I got to do. I got to do the admin that goes with releasing a new series, especially, but um, new release stuff. And when I'm, the problem with the autoresponder stuff we'll talk about is that they're trickling out, like you're not sending them, they're automatically going out to new people who sign up. And so you're going to get emails back if you ask for them back or if you, people will just reply anyway, if you don't want to ask for an answer. So I'd have more emails coming in during times when I'm kind of in my writing mode. So, but that is how I use mine now. And Joe and Andrea will tell you what they do and everybody can kind of figure out what works for them. And, and Lindsay, right. Lindsay, Moving on. Lindsay, 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 if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it's, I, <laughs> Your honestly, system works for you. It works, but it is one of those things. That is one of those things where I think I could do much better, but I have to choose, you know, when we all do like, what, what are we going to prioritize spending our time on? And for now, you know, if I ever get to the point where I'm writing only four books a year only, maybe I'll have more time I want to put into email. We'll see. Or I hire that salaried person. They can do the email. All right. Next up. All right. Uh, as for me, I use MailChimp. Um, I actually started off using a personally maintained spreadsheet, which was, don't do that. But I didn't do it for very long. <laughs> so that's not too much of a problem. Um, I have never really done aggressive newsletter building. So my list is almost entirely organic. I think I did one great big, uh, like, newsletter builder a while ago, I ended up removing almost all of those email addresses because they were by far the least responsive email addresses I had. Um, I, my list hovers between three and 5,000, which seems like a gigantic range. I don't mean that it jumps back and forth between them. I just mentioned that I pruned it recently. So it was at 5,000 and now it's about 3,000, which is pretty small, but I'm happy with my open rates. Um, I have had... Uh, I've added a five email long autoresponder, uh, and that gives folks in order. Basically the first one gives people the goodies that I promised for them joining. And then the next one talks about my audio books. And then the next one talks about my predilection to art and gives out some of the, I, I previously had newsletter perks that were art based, like, like, uh, uh, wallpapers and stuff like that. So I give those. Then I mentioned some of my stranger series and then the last one sort of officially welcomes them and also sort of links them to all of the series starters in case they weren't aware of. And uh, I just actually looked at when, when I was making my notes for this, I looked and uh, the open rates for those are fantastic. I should hope that the open rates for your onboarding series are pretty good because somebody just chose to be on your list. Uh, but we're talking, you know, over 75% click rates up to like 35%. Again, I'm usually giving away something for free. So it's a good way to get somebody to click. But uh, I try to do an email at least once a month. I used to do only new releases and therefore only had sent out an email about uh, once every three months. But now I try to do one about once a month. Uh, if I don't have a new release to talk about, usually I'll be talking about what I'm working on. Um, and I also, once I started increasing, my goal is to eventually do one a week, but I'm nowhere near actually achieving that yet. But because so many of the people who signed up, signed up with literally the sentence I was using was, I promise to only send you emails when I have a new release. 
Uh, I've added a section to the end of every email where I mention, hey, if you don't want to receive anything but new release emails, let me know and I'll segment you off to just new release emails. So I have a very small list of people who aggressively informed me they don't want anything but new releases and they only get new releases. And everyone else seems to be perfectly happy to be getting what they're getting. I have not seen a significant decrease or increase in open rate as a result of it. So that's roughly where my newsletter situation is now. I have done a little bit of, of, of testing with MailerLite. I was thinking of moving because, as we spoke about on, on the podcast, MailChimp has sort of expanded beyond uh, newsletters, which is great if you need to use it for things besides newsletters. But if you don't, you're basically subsidizing everybody else's non-newsletter stuff with your newsletter payments. So um, I still love the way they work, but I'm... I'm, I'm considering moving to another thing. And MailerLite is probably my target, but I haven't learned enough about it to know if I want to make the move. Okay, so um, I've jumped around a lot um, where providers are concerned. I'm, I've mentioned this before, but I'm currently with MailJet, and I do love them. Uh, I still haven't resolved the not triggering when they join through Zapier from Facebook. I'm going to actually probably end up opening another Target um, target ticket to see if I can figure out if we can get that fixed. But I mean, everything else about it has been really great. Um, I've been there for a few months now. Some of the functionalities are really kind of weird. Honestly, there's some quirks I'm learning to deal with, like copying and pasting removes all formatting, which is awesome because I hate copying and pasting from somewhere and having it all the formatting, all the HTML getting all wonky. But it's also really frustrating when you're trying to copy and paste links <laughs> or, or book titles, lists of that and all that. Um, so I started my newsletter when I first signed with a publisher and my, the publisher herself insisted I do it. She was an author. And so she was like, you need to have a newsletter list. Um, back then I emailed whenever I remembered, usually every six or so months. Um, it was much less than effective because it was not, it was, it was so under the table. It's on my dad's server and I got the email addresses legitimately, but they didn't have a way to unsubscribe. <laughs> so they would have to email me and say, unsubscribe me. And that was, that was great for them. That meant they didn't want to be there and they were being passive aggressive, you know, and, and just sticking around because they hated not having, hated having to tell me to unsubscribe them. Um, anyway, so now I email nearly every week. Um, I used to be really, really strict about that. And I've only probably in the last three or four years before the last couple of months, I'd only skipped maybe three or four times, even when I had a baby or two. I made sure I had an email going out or I'd take one week off. And that's, I mean, that's kind of crazy looking back. But, um, and I, in the last few months, I have relaxed some and I will sometimes skip a week. Mainly it's because I don't have as much going on right now. So I don't want to be just sending an email when I have nothing to update on, you know? Um, and so recently I've been focusing on other things like character takeovers, character spotlights and interviews, things like that. It's been a lot of fun, but Anyway, so that's pretty much where I am with my newsletter right now. All right. Well, we're going to jump into some questions. I will say I'm one of those people that it's kind of weird, but I suck at writing letters. Like my mom used to like write, you know, she'd like write every week when I was in the army and <laughs> she like expected me to write back and like, well, same things are going on. We went to the rifle range. It's like great. But I don't know. Some people are like amazing at writing letters and just have like, really interesting things about their life. I think I tend not to want to share, which is odd since I started the podcast and I'm sharing things with you guys. But you know, I don't share real personal stuff very often. Um, so it's always like a struggle for me to do that personal, you know, 
yeah, here's what's going on. Because I feel like things will be boring to other people, even though they probably wouldn't be. Because you're a writer, right? You can make things entertaining. So I totally sympathize with uh, not necessarily having something to say every week. And even when I send out my new release forms, I'm like, uh, what am I going to say before <laughs> before I go into uh, buy my book? All right, Andrea, what are some of the mistakes that authors are making with their newsletters? Um, okay, so there's uh, a few I can think of. Um, there's there's lots. Everybody has mistakes. We're all human, right? Um, but first, not being consistent. So what I mean by this is emailing every week for several months, and then emailing like ev- only like once every four months or something like that. Then going back to weekly emails. Um, if you find yourself, dear listeners, um, struggling with this, that was not meant to be patronizing. That was me going, who am I addressing this to? Our listeners. <laughs> if you find yourself struggling with this, try committing to emailing monthly um, because weekly is probably too frequently. Um, but you don't want to be less frequent than a month because of the, the sender respect slash reputation that email clients keep track of. Um, and if you do, we email monthly, then work on the email throughout the month and add a reminder so you don't forget it. Um, next using images that are way too big. So, um, I, I get a lot of emails. I'm, I'm subscribed to a lot of author emails you know, author newsletters. Some of them are my friends, some are my clients, some are authors that I love, some are authors I just follow, right? And one of the biggest issues I'm seeing, even from hugely successful authors, is they use huge, huge emails in their in their emails. In their sorry, in their huge emails in their emails. Huge images <laughs> in their emails. And if um if the images take too long, people are likely to, to like move away from the email. And actually there are studies that have shown that every second it takes to load an image, you lose 7% of your readers. And so, I mean, big in that case, you know, that it's, cause it's big, it's got a lot of, um, you know, pixels per square inch, all that stuff. Uh, so that's really bad. But also your goal is for the image to be viewable on any device. So like on a cell phone, you know, where's my phone holding up for the camera. Um, you want your images, for those who are watching the thing, to be within this size right here. Don't use a full-size image in an email. Um, shrink it down until it doesn't, you know, it's not taking up that whole screen or more. Um, one of the issues that I found was, yeah, they're sending huge images, but also it's causing readers to have to scroll to see the whole uh, book cover. And that defeats the purpose of including book covers and emails um, because it breaks it into chunks that lack cohesion, removing the, oh, you know, the awe factor. And it also makes it so that readers are noticing little nitpicky details, possibly that they wouldn't notice otherwise. Like, oh, look, look at that, that roll of fat on her waist, which happened today, by the way, for me, because I was scrolling down. I was like, I wouldn't even notice it, except her midsection was right there, you know? And so I was like, oh, look, a midsection with a little cute little muffin top. Um, and so things like that, you know, just, yeah, just, just make your images smaller. Okay. Um, anyway, so last sharing too much or not sharing enough. Um, it's a fine line to walk. And honestly, this is something that I struggle with on the opposite side from Lindsay. (laughs) If listeners can't tell, I'm very personal. Um, and so it's honestly bad to go either way. So, um, is something I'm constantly working on. Studies have time and time again shown that if buyers don't connect with you, at least on some level, they won't be as willing to buy. But on the other hand, people who overshare tend to get great open rates, but really low conversions. And so they're like devouring your emails. And I think we talk about this again later, but they're not converting. And the purpose of your newsletter list is to get conversions. And so, yeah, so those are just some of the, the mistakes that I'm seeing a lot of 
right now. It's always tough to know, like, how to share without really sharing anything super personal. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yep, here's my dogs being cute. They did this cute thing. I figure pets are always safe. Um, question for you, like, how big is too big for images? Like, should you sh- do like a cover that's like 400 by 600 or is that still too big? Um, I usually aim for around 200 wide, honestly, because, um, you know, some phones are smaller and some email programs blow the image up anyway. And so, I mean, if you force it to be smaller, I don't know. That's just what I found in my emails when I send out. Um, and some email newsletter providers actually force the image to fill the whole space that's allotted to it. And you're going to have to wiggle around with that if that's the case with your email provider. All right. That seems really small to someone opening. Now I'm like imagining some me on my Mac, my iMac with like the 30 inch monitor opening up your email and there's this little teeny um, thumbnail. So now I guess I maybe just test because I I think I I don't do this. I I send a test email to myself, but I don't open it on my phone. So that would be something to look at. Safest thing is not to send, not to use images, but you probably want to throw your book cover in there at least. Um, Yeah, no. And also it also depends. So when I say 200 wide, that's my dots per square inch are usually set at 400. Most book covers are set at 300. And so that actually it gets bigger on the reader's end. And so it you'll have to experiment and see what size yours needs to be to make it so that it doesn't require scrolling for a reader. Are you, I don't know if we talk about this later. I was going to ask you about templates. Like I always go super minimalist because I've received so many things that are broken <laughs> from other newsletters. Uh, is that something you worry about too with mobile and that sort of thing? Um, I, I use templates. My templates can be kind of extensive when it comes to my selling emails. I will generally send a plain text email or a very pared down email, um, templates. Let's see. Yeah. I mean, if all of the important stuff is in the section that's towards the top and it's not broken, then it kind of doesn't really matter if like your dog, I mean, I love your dogs or my kids, right? If those pictures are broken because the main point of the email is there, um, obviously you want to make sure that it's going to load, but templates are such a huge time saver. And I do recommend using, I mean, having multiple sections in an email just so that people get used to seeing the same elements in the same place. Like, an unsubscribe button. And I, I don't have this anywhere in our, our podcast here, there, here in whatever, whatever we're doing right now. Um, but I like at the bottom in the footer, it always says unsubscribe here. That's what your, uh, your newsletter provider automatically puts in. Uh, I recommend having a designated section where it's in bold and it's big and mine's bright red. My, uns- my unsubscribe thing is bright red on a white background. It says unsubscribe here. And the reason for that is people mark I mean, people mark emails as spam if they can't find the unsubscribe, if they have to scroll down, if the unsubscribe is gray on a little bit darker gray. And that happens with these newsletter providers. They don't make it super obvious. And so I don't know where I was going, why I went off on that tangent. (laughs) Well, it's important. And let's maybe segue into the next question because we're going to talk about that. What can we do to avoid getting shunted into the spam or promo folders? I I should point out, I think I talked about this earlier, that I was having trouble with Gmail. I switched to doing it from my Comcast email, which is like 20 years old. And, you know, I'm like, this is not very professional because I was like LB at lindsaybaroker.com and that Gmail hates my domain name, guys. Um, So uh, 
is working much better with just using the Comcast email address. But um, so question for you, what can people do to avoid that? Because that's like if half of your emails to all your Gmail subscribers are going into spam, that's like people that want to hear from you and are never going to see it. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's where testing comes into place because the rule of thumb is your domain name will be better. But if, I mean, everybody, there's going to be exceptions to every single rule. And so Lindsay's tested this. She knows that Comcast is just so reliable because they've been around for so many years, you know, and so they just, they get, they get sent. And, um, so, uh, I mean, yeah, actually making it easy for people to unsubscribe. If too many people mark you as spam, then you're going to end up in spam folders. And I actually, again, um, the promotions folder, honestly, I'm going to say something that's not super popular. Being in the promotions folder tab is not a huge issue. Uh, people don't check theirs regularly. So when it comes to like really quick sales and things like that, you're going to be, it's going to be really hard to catch people right away. But people do check their, their promotions folder occasionally and, and, and sometimes like regular once a month, once a week, whatever. I don't know what people regularly do, but you are sending a promotional email because you are selling stuff. And so getting out of there is very difficult. And I'm kind of of the belief that getting out is kind of a waste of time. There's certain things you can do, like asking readers to drag their, drag your email to the inbox. And <laughs> I can't find something I'm expecting. I agree. <laughs> Lindsay said that. Um, yeah. So asking people to send or you know, drag your emails to the main inbox or having people respond to the first email. Uh, there's all sorts of ways to end up not in there, but honestly, you're going to almost always just end up back there again. And so it's one of those questions of what's, what's, I mean, is your time worth spent? constantly fighting that promotions folder or is it better spent doing other things? And again, if readers are looking for your emails, then, then they'll check there anyway. Um, let's see email clients. Like I was saying earlier, don't trust emails that get sent from casual sources like Gmail and, um, buying a domain sending through that is usually the best way. It doesn't matter if replies get forwarded onto one of those regular email clients after that. So I, there's like these forwarding systems where you email from your domain and the response end up ends up in your Gmail or Hotmail account or whatever. That's fine. Um, too many images. We've already talked about, um, about having big images, but having too many images and too many links. Um, and so that can get you in the spam folder automatically. Also using an exclamation point with a question mark. So, that's kind of crazy. Love Western books. Download my book today. So that's that kind of thing will actually get flagged um, frequently and sent to spam folders or just given like in my news, my email client, it gives a little hot flame that says this could be bad. Um, <laughs> because anyway, I'm going to go off course there uh, or doing anything that would cause readers to mark you as spam. So sending irrelevant messages, not reminding people how and why they signed up and not optimizing for mobile. Uh, and that was actually something that was really surprising to me. People get annoyed if they can't read emails on their phones and they'll mark you as spam if they can't read on their phones. People are spiteful is what I'm learning. They're like, I hate the way this person's doing things. Therefore they are spam. So yeah. All right. Uh, it's funny. I, I just received a message with this most recent book release that from somebody was like, Hey, your, your, your email ended up in spam and you're in my contact list. And I was like, Oh, well, that's disheartening, but, uh, it's, it's going to happen to a percentage of your stuff almost no matter what. I've had emails from family members end up in spam. So sometimes we can get really overzealous, but, uh, so sincerity versus clickbait. 
it seems like a lot of newsletter marketing is balancing sincerity and being genuine with getting people to bypass the part of their brain that decides whether or not they're going to click something and just makes them click a thing. So how do we balance out our tactics to avoid, or at least to avoid overtly seeming to be manipulative? Uh, I started talking before I muted, unmuted my microphone. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, being clickbaity and all of that, that's definitely something you want to avoid. Um, it's, it's always a good idea to do anything that's going to be seen as manipulative. Uh, my rule is this, it's fine to occasionally do something weird in a subject line or do something even clickbaity as long as it is finished in the email 100%. So if you put something clickbait in a subject and it doesn't relate directly to your content, your email, you're going to get spam reports or just really annoyed people who are less likely to open future emails. So you can get creative with subject lines and sometimes seeing a crazy one can lead to great ideas for content. Um, I like, uh, I'm not going to get into it, but just, there's just so many awesome ideas out there. Just like Google great subject lines or crazy subject lines or take my course because I give you ideas too. <laughs> um, but there's like, you can do all sorts of crazy things and still have it be sincere and genuine if it is followed up 100% inside the email. And um, also A-B test your subject lines and test them on real people. So not just A-B testing in through your provider or through emails, but test them on real people, like have them tell you their knee-jerk reaction if you're worried about something being too clickbaity or um, bordering on sincerity. I think when it comes to subject lines, I'm probably super boring, super low-key. I'm just like, new Star Kingdom book is out. <laughs> you know, it's like a bonus scene with Sundari. That's the character. Um, so, but I think that really works for my readers since I get them from the back of my books. So they're like fans already when they sign up. I don't know how effective that would be if you were doing, um, you know, kind of, just giving away a free book in order to get people to sign up cold, you know, and then they may or may not have read the book and, you know, cared about you. <laughs> but um, I, I do try to always put like um, my, the new book title or the series title or something in the subject line to trigger the memory. Like, Oh, that's the series I'm reading. So at the least uh, I, my open rates are pretty good and I don't get too many spam reports considering the size now of the list. Uh, which is, I know, modest size compared to some of the people out there with 100,000. But do you have any tips for subject, subject lines that get opened? Yeah, that's such a, a big question. Uh, there's just so much out there. Um, so first, start with action verbs. Um, if there's something you want them to do, put that that at the very start of the subject line. And um, along those lines, don't hesitate to use calls to action right in the subject line. So for example, grab your t copy of title now or um, pick up um, Lindsay Broker's recent, no, latest release now or you know things like that. Um, try single word subject lines because eyes are drawn immediately to the shortest uh, subject line. If there's like, if it's like really, really short compared to the other ones, like one word, um, they're going to be surrounded by long ones. And so the reader's eyes are going to be drawn to that immediately. And, and it, it's, it is manipulation, but it's not dishonest manipulation. This is not unethical, you know? Um, let's see, try a numbered list. That's also a good thing to do. So like 10 reasons to read title today, uh, and then have like a bullet point list of things in there for them to, to read. Um, and then you can also tease them with what they'll find in your email. Like my favorite book is dot, dot, dot. 
And so it goes off and then they don't get to see the answer until they open it up. Or like one that I did, oh my gosh, and Lindsay and Joe, you guys are probably going to say I'm like evil for this. I said, why I hate Anne McCaffrey's books, dot, dot, dot. That got a lot of opens. But I was like, that first book, like the main chick was getting slapped all the time by her husband. I was like, I read, didn't read it as a kid. I read it as an adult. And I was like, screenshotting slap after slap after slap. And I was like, this sucks. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> All right. So this is a sort of a quick sort of add on to that and sort of talks about what you were talking about, where uh, it needs to be readable on all devices. How long should our subject lines be? Because I have been known to write particularly long ones. I'm trying to get get over that. Andrew, you're going to have to turn your mic on to answer that question. The, the, <laughs> the listeners are super interested in, in what you're saying. <laughs> I, I tell you, I don't know what my deal is. I've been doing that all night already. Okay, maybe I just won't mute my mic because the questions are short enough where muting is. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so it depends on where your readers open their emails. And I feel like I've said that already. <laughs> um, but um, over half of consumers read on their phones. So keeping them short and concise is a good idea. Um, reg- usually around 50 characters or lower is, is good. Um, MailChimp did a study a couple years ago where they analyzed like 200 million emails and they found that 28 to 39 characters had the highest click rate, but you need to test and figure out how your readers, um, respond and then just do a bunch of AB testing, see what types of subject lines, what links work best for you. And using a longer one is not a problem. If you can, um, if you make sure that if what's cut off, they can actually still see in the email because nobody hates not being able to see all of the information. All right. I just want to put in an aside on your mute thing. I, I used to feel really bad when we did this. I'm like, oh, that's so unprofessional, man. Why can't we just get this together? Because I do it too. Um, and then I've been watching like CNBC in the mornings and they're always interviewing like some hedge fund manager, you know, and it's like, um, your mute is, uh, your mute is on. I hear your dog in the back. Your dog is barking. So now that the whole world is at home doing this, I'm like, well, okay. Unless you have like a super professional studio that you can lock yourself in and don't need to mute yourself. Um, I, I do feel better now. It's kind of cracking me up how unprofessional the news reporting is these days. They're like laundry hampers in the background, you know, overflowing with clothes. Anyway. Or like the guy who was doing a uh, Zoom meeting, hold, hosting a Zoom meeting, and he wasn't wearing pants. He was in his boxer shorts. Have you seen that one? <laughs> it was great. No, that hasn't come up on CNBC, CNBC <laughs> yet, but I'll watch for that guy. <laughs> All right. Um, you mentioned A-B testing. Um, so I guess I feel like that's a little more of an advanced concept. Could you kind of explain what that is? And maybe it's probably going to be different for every newsletter provider, but like, how how would you do that, I guess. So A-B testing is where you, um, I mean, there you can do it manually, you can do it automatically. When it's done uh, manually, it's where you'll send, um, I, some people split their email lists in half and they'll send one subject line to half and one subject line to another half. And then what you do is you you send that out and then you analyze the, the answers and, and the results and see how many people open, how many people clicked, um, how many people converted. And um, when it's done by a provider, they'll usually send it to a small percentage and then they'll send either they'll send the rest to the one that performs the best or they'll just keep doing it and then they'll alert you to um, the results. When you're doing it manually, it's important to not uh, basically don't measure the results until it's been or analyze the results until it's been a day or two. Um, A-B testing is really, really important. It gets you information and results uh, you wouldn't have otherwise. 
And I recommend it with a lot of aspects of running a newsletter, but especially where subject lines and previews are concerned. So if someone is getting bad opens, a focus on their subject lines or previews is a good place to start. Um, basically learning how to write compelling ones, then learning how to test them out to find out how your readers react to specific things. Um, and then, like we've said already, many new newsletters have an option to do it for you if you have a large enough list. And like when I was with MailChimp, I think the size was like between five and 6,000 they wanted you to have before they would allow you to automatically A-B test. I don't know if that's the case anymore, um, but figure out what the required size is and go from there. And if you can't do it automatically, you can, you'll need to do it manually. But um, for people who are interested in doing that. It's, it can be very powerful. Um, there's actually other ways and I'm hoping, I think I talked about them later. I don't know if I don't remember, but there are other ways to, um, AB test manually that do, doesn't require a lot of time. And I do believe I'll get into that. And if not, we'll hopefully not forget to go back over it. <laughs> All right. Still on the subject of AB testing. Uh, does the amount of testing you do change with how often you do a newsletter? Like, if you are the sort of person who only sends out a new release newsletter and therefore you only put out uh, an email every couple of months, should you be doing more or less testing than someone who rigorously sticks, sticks to like a weekly schedule? Um, I mean, you can, but it's, if you're emailing less frequently or only when you have a new release, then you need to be absolutely sure that what you're sending is the best it can be. Um, so AB testing helps you learn your readers, what they respond to, what puts them off. Plus, you're already fighting uphill. So the way things are set up it, um, that way, because if you're emailing infrequently, you're not earning sender reputation or respect. Um, and your emails won't be getting through as easily as they could. So you want to make sure you're doing everything you can to help them get where they're supposed to go. I mentioned in the beginning autoresponder sequences. Maybe before I ask your question, can you remind us or tell people who don't really know what that is yet, kind of what that is, and I think all email list providers pretty much are going to have an option for setting that up follow-up sequence. It might be called something like that. Yeah, um, pretty much all of them do. Even Sendy-based applications do. You have to set it up yourself, but pretty much all of them have the option. Um, there's like little variations between, you know, they'll start at like, say, November 31st and email number five comes out. 40 days after November 1st, where most of them will say email number five comes out a week after the last one came out. Um, but an autoresponder is basically, it's just a, it's a triggered set of automatic emails that when somebody signs up or when a certain thing gets triggered, they start receiving these emails after, in a certain pattern and it slowly introduces readers to specific things. It seems like this is almost a must have if you're going to do the kind of list building where you did the, you know, joint promo thing with authors and everybody's giving away a free book to get basically a, almost a cold call. You know, it's like they haven't read your work. They don't know you yet. So what are the kind of things that you could, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but like if you were getting a new potential reader who was interested enough to download your freebie, um, would you do like, Hey, well, thanks for signing up. Here's the free thing. And then in the next one, like, did you have any trouble downloading the free thing? And Hey, you know, here's the second book in the series. If you already read the free thing, like, could you kind of walk through like what you might do for content on those? Yeah. So in the first email is usually, like you said, the free thing. And yes, actually having an automation, automation sequence set in place is a really, really important and really great idea. If you're doing like the aggressive list building techniques that are out there and you're not just focusing on organic, um, but because it helps people, you know, come to know you and know if they actually want to be on your list. And if you annoy, annoy them enough with your personality and your genuine self and they unsubscribe themselves, that's a good thing, right? 
Um, but the first email will generally be like, Hey, this is your free stuff. And the second email, I, I recommend that you have an email in there somewhere that verifies that they got their free stuff because so many people don't. Um, and they're hesitant to reach out and say, Hey, I didn't get my free stuff sometime. And if one person's reaching out, then, you know, other people are not as getting it as well. Um, I don't know. I recommend, um, like if you have a review team, have one of your emails be asking for reviews or asking them to join your street team. Um, you can have an email that sells, uh, your, your books, but if you do don't have that one be like the first, second, or even the third email you want to have, um, just basically a buffer between getting them their free stuff and giving them a chance to read the free stuff before you ask them to, to buy the next book. Um, and then each email will have, you know, a little bit of an introduction to you. It'll be, uh, it's based, I mean, it's the purpose of the automation sequences to help people come to know you and to connect with you and your personality and your books. And so you want to have a little bit of all of that in there. Uh, if you're going to share pictures of your dogs or your cats or your kids or your hermit crabs, <laughs> start that from the beginning and just do that here and there just so they know what to expect throughout while they're on your list. And so you're just not randomly throwing things at them, which is also not a not a bad idea, but you want to be consistent as much as possible. And I, I should add, I don't mean to imply that if you're exper or not experienced, but if you're an author who's getting the emails from the back of a book, you shouldn't do this. I don't, that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I, you know, I keep thinking about maybe I should set one of these up. Um, because like at this point, I have so many series out there that it's hard to know what they came in on. So that's one of the problems I, I have. Like, uh, for my bonuses, we actually, I don't think we have any questions about bonuses. Um, like for my fantasy one, they get whatever bonus scenes I promise them for the series they're reading. And then I also do like a four books starter set. It's got four of my book ones in it for my different series. So I, it's like, but I send it all, I get the all to them at once. Here's all your bonuses. So I, I wonder if I should go in and I, I know I should, you know, go in and do one like, you know, did you get the stuff that I, I sent you? Like you said. And then one like, well, and then maybe one like, well, this is one of my, you know, one of my early books that I really love that hardly anybody checks out. So you could check that out too if you wanted to. Or uh, when you have a big backlist, it probably is worth pointing people to some of your other books, especially maybe you're not biggest sellers to get them into that. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that <laughs> too. Um, I used to have like emails that would, you know, go through all of my back series and everything. Um, and I just found that readers naturally find their own way to backlists and uh, like my lower selling series, they're probably not going to read those anyway, because there's a reason they're not selling well. And so, I mean, email, space is kind of valuable. And so, I mean, you could have them go to, you know, books that don't sell as well, but readers are very inquisitive when they find an author they love and they've read a whole bunch of their books, they're going to start downloading those books. And am I still connected because it's saying I'm having problems here? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah, we're hearing you just fine. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so I wouldn't, I mean, you I'm, do it and test it, right? And then this is also for listeners, like and what works best for your list. Um, and then also I didn't I fully answer your question, but doing one right, like doing an automation sequence, right. means making sure you have them trigger automatically when someone signs up and, um, double checking that triple checking that just making sure that it, it they're actually being sent the way they're supposed to. And then you also want to send emails frequently in the beginning, just to help them remember who you are and then gradually dropping to about once a week. And then, or if you email less frequently than that to once every other week, or even once a month or whatever, just making it so that it's a habit to them and they, they know who you are. 
Um, and then also an automation sequence, you're going to want to put the most important stuff in front of readers. And, um, so one of the really awesome benefits, and this was actually what I was referring to earlier, one of the really awesome benefits of automation sequences is it's a great way to A-B test automatically without having the required list size. So what I did in the beginning is I picked a bunch of subject lines and I sent them up and I put it on, I had like six emails or five or seven, I can't remember. And I had those go out for a few months and then to like about... <clears throat> to about a thousand readers. And then I created a new automation sequence. What I did was I copied the old one and I, and, and the reason you want to do this, you don't want to start over from scratch because that's a waste of time, but you also don't want to use the old automation sequence and switch to new subject lines because that messes up the data. Um, so you start out fresh with the new automation sequence and you put in different subject lines and then have it sent out for the same amount of time or to the same number of readers and then compare the information. This is probably the most beneficial way that I've learned how to analyze subject lines and the most uh it's been the best way for me to learn good subject lines through that uh, is by doing that and so that was before i even had enough people to do proper a b testing um and i usually have more than one going at a time so i can easily compare now without having to pause one and start a new one and so that's that's been really helpful all right um so i mentioned earlier the size of my newsletter <laughs> and uh it was uh uh, like I said, uh, 3,000 felt a little bit small. Is there a target size for a newsletter or should we always strive for more? Given the fact that most newsletter providers charge more for larger lists, it seems like at some point there's a cost-benefit analysis that needs to be done. Yeah, your video froze, but we are hearing you. Okay, because so. it says Zoom is not responding. So I can still see you guys and you're still live. So I'm just going to keep going until um, hopefully it doesn't end. And I know we're ending here soon anyway, but... Um, okay, so most authors aren't content with where they're at financially, newsletter size, et cetera, things like that. So um, ideas they've turned into books and series, numbers of reviews, we're naturally going to be striving for more. Um, and then organic lists lose 14% of subscribers a year with or inorganic lists naturally worse than that. So if you're not building your list, you're losing it because there's no way to keep it at the same level. There's no such thing as plateau and keeping it plateaued. It's either going down or up. Um, and so, um, keep, just keep that in mind. Um, and I wouldn't say there's a target size lists that are around 500 with very active and supportive subscribers can be more effective than a list of 10,000 with mostly dead weight, but definitely yes, make sure it's actually making back the money you're putting into it. If it's not, then there are a lot of factors that need to be considered like subject lines, content, not sharing enough, sharing too much reader engagement, how frequently you're releasing. Um, there's just all sorts of different things that go into, um, into whether your list and why your list is not performing the way it should be. All right, cool. We're having a little technical issues with Zoom. So I think this is going to be a good stopping point for this week. Um, Andrea, thank you for the excellent information. And we are going to have part two of kind of advanced newsletter stuff coming up next week for you guys. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for listening. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And we uh, have the Facebook group, which we mentioned a few times here. Uh, just search for Six Figure Authors on Facebook. Uh, or I've got the link in the show notes on the website too. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Bye. So long, everybody. <laughs>